The scripture reading this morning is taking, taken from the book of Mark, starting in the 12th book, uh, starting with the 28th chapter. I'm sorry, the 12th chapter, the 28th verse. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and that there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The word of the Lord. Our guest speaker this morning is Dr. Daniel Bruner. Dan has been with us this weekend in uh, a number here. We're part of a two-day conference, Friday evening and Saturday afternoon, ending with a dinner last night, and we were deeply blessed for the time together. Dan is a professor of Christian history, is that right? Yeah, at uh, George Fox University in Portland, Oregon. He has been for a number of years a pastor of a Lutheran church, and he's part now of uh, teaching at the Academy of Spiritual Formation in Portland. Uh, that's uh, how we know Dan is through Ken Bell attending uh, that academy. Uh, that academy, I haven't even been, but I just know, know through knowing a number of people, has done great work in renewal in the church and particularly in renewal in the lives of, of many ministers. Part of that uh, in the academy is, and even in Dan's teaching to us over the weekend, is the coming together of the ancient and the contemporary, the realization that God sees the whole of the church, not just our little particular historical slice. Uh, Dan's PhD is in, I think I'm going to get this right, German pietism in the early 18th century. Close enough. Yeah, very so good. if you have any questions about German pietism in the early 18th century, <laughs> not the late 18th century. You have to ask somebody else for that. Um, you can speak with Dan afterwards. I listened to the, most of the sermon in advance at St. Timothy's, so I already know you're going to really like this. And just a couple of, without me kind of teaching you the sermon first, which I won't do, Dan quotes a number of people in the sermon, too, that when I saw their names right away, I was like, yes. One is Meister Eckhart. You know how we, hear, we say here a fair bit, be compassionate. Everyone you meet is engaged in a great struggle. It's Meister Eckhart who said that. And he was alive late 1200s. So maybe one day we'll learn that lesson. And then Alexis de Tocqueville, who in uh, the mid-1800s, took a bit of a tour across the United States and went back reporting to France what he had learned. Uh, he's been in the news lately. He's not still with us, but because many of his observations are being looked at again, given uh, what's happening in the United States at this time. I know you'll be blessed, so do what you're supposed to do now and listen well. Listen with ears for what Dan has prepared for us and for the Holy Spirit to reveal to you. Dan, come on up. I'll pray for you as 
we turn to the Lord. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your servant, Dan, and for the friendship, even just in meeting for minutes and hours that is being established with myself, with Ken, with the people of St. Timothy's and Sutherland. We pray a blessing upon his work, his work for your kingdom, and we pray a blessing upon his life, his family. We thank you for him opening up himself, his life to us this weekend, and now we pray this, that we would be attentive to what you would say to us at this time. Bless him with the freedom that we need in preaching to know your spirit. So we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Yeah, it's been uh, just a wonderful grace for me to be here uh, over the weekend, and I'm just so grateful to see this wonderful experiment that, that you're doing. And I'm finally getting to see which, which of the people that came to the conference belong to Sutherland and which ones uh, belong to St. Tim. So um, it's, it's now I know, and it's, it's, it's fantastic. So, yeah, it's, it's a, I look forward to talking to you about, um, about the Trinity, about the Trinity. There's a, there's a prejudice against theology and doctrine these days, both in the church and outside the church. Doctrines cause divisions and wars. Doctrines, it is said, are made by humans and not by God. They're used to control us and our thoughts. Doctrines are only important to keep seminary professors employed, which, in my humble opinion, is actually quite important. All that really matters, at least in the minds of many, is spirituality, what we believe, is inconsequential. Dorothy Sayers, uh, an English novelist, theologian, writes compellingly about the importance of doctrine and theology. She wishes the average churchgoers had, had been taught more aspects of theology clearly. This morning we're going to talk about one of those central aspects of theology, of Christian theology, and that is the doctrine of the Trinity, And Sayers says, if an average churchgoer was asked about the Trinity, she might answer, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the whole thing incomprehensible. It's something put in by theologians to make it more difficult, and it's got nothing to do with daily life. Dorothy Sayers wrote that over 60 years ago, and I think it's probably only gotten worse since then. So I've got my work cut out. Because not only is the doctrine of the Trinity one of the core doctrines of the Christian faith, but it has everything to do with daily life. So here we go. If you've been to Sunday school, you've probably heard any number of illustrations to explain the Trinity. The Trinity is like an apple, one apple made up of a skin, a core, and the white stuff you eat. The Trinity is like H2O. It can be liquid, it can be ice, it can be steam. These illustrations do not help us at all. They should be chucked out the window. The Trinity is one God in three persons. I know it's tough. But let me do the best I can can to explain how did the church come to such a mystifying belief. Let's start with the Bible. In the Old Testament, we read these words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus quoted this verse and said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. 
Both Judaism and Christianity are monotheistic. In other words, we believe in one and only one God. But in the New Testament, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each referred to in various places as divine, as God. Before his ascension into heaven, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. At the end of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, we read the grace of of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In both of these verses, we see the Father, the Son, the Spirit all mentioned together, but here's the problem. Nowhere in the Bible do we ever encounter the word Trinity. It's not there. So the early church was left with a dilemma, a challenge. Through its Old Testament and its Jewish heritage and roots, they knew there was only one God. And yet in the New Testament, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each talked about as God. So over the centuries, the doctrine of the Trinity was developed as a way to express faithfully what the church read in the Bible. Now, the most famous expression of the church's belief in the Trinity is uh, a fairly unknown creed from about the 4th or about the 5th century known as the Athanasian Creed. Don't worry about it. I'm going to read a part of that creed for you. It's really very long. You can be very glad I'm not reading the whole creed for you. So you can get a sense for this mystery we call the Trinity. Eternal is the Father. Eternal is the Son. Eternal is the Spirit. And yet there are not three eternal beings, but one who is eternal. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. And a few stanzas later, the creed tells us why all of this matters. And in this trinity, no one is before or after, greater or less than the other, but all three persons are in themselves co-eternal and co-equal, and so we must worship. The trinity in unity and the one God in three persons. And so we must worship. And so we must worship the trinity in unity And the one God in three persons, ultimately the Trinity is about worship. And worship is rooted in mystery. Some of you may read these words and say, that makes no sense. It's it's gibberish. It's theological gobbledygook. But perhaps the church would use other words, like mystery, like wonder. Theology isn't about defining God. That would be arrogant. We can only understand so much about who God is. The doctrine of the Trinity leads ultimately to humility and to worship before the wonder and the mystery of God. As we read in 1 Timothy, without any doubt, the mystery of our religion is great. When talking about our faith, Richard Rohr has said, I believe mystery isn't something you cannot understand. Rather, it is something that you can endlessly understand. And so is that all we're left with in the end, is mystery? We're just getting to the good part. Because in recent years, there's actually been a resurgence of of theological interest in the Trinity. 
I know it sounds impossible, but the Trinity is amazingly relevant to our lives. And not only do we talk about the Trinity at, at my seminary where I teach, but I've also talked about it in sermons like this one, and I've talked about the Trinity in weddings. Yes, in weddings. So here we go, the Trinity. The Trinity, three and one, one and three. At the heart of the Trinity is a relationship. A relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. A relationship of dynamic, passionate love. In 1 John we read, Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love. Usually when we think about God, we think that God is loving. That God acts in loving ways. But the Bible says that God is love. Love. God's very nature is a constant flow of love, a relationship of love. Now, before we move on too quickly, I actually want us to stop here for a second. God's very nature is relationship. That relationship is love. God is love. If God wasn't love, God wouldn't exist. God exists as love. So listen to what our old dead guy wrote about 700 years ago. Meister Eckhart. Know that God loves you so powerfully that it staggers the mind. If one were to deprive God of this so that he did not love you, one would deprive God of his life and being, or one would kill God if we may say such a thing. If God couldn't love, God wouldn't exist because God is love. If all you heard this morning was that one thing, it would be enough. Because we, you and I, we have been created to participate in that passionate, loving communion that is God. But what does this loving communion look like? The very nature of the Trinity, three and one, one and three, the love of the Trinity is represented by two passionate driving movements, oneness and threeness. We can put them on a continuum, oneness and threeness. Another way we can talk about these passions is the movement towards union and the movement towards uniqueness. Within the Trinity is a passionate drive toward union or oneness. Each member of the Trinity honors and serves the other, all for one, one for all. At the same time, within the Trinity is a passionate drive towards uniqueness. God in three persons, each person unique. The Father is unique, the Son is unique, the Holy Spirit is unique. These drives within the Trinity toward union and uniqueness aren't a back and forth kind of deal. They go in both directions at the same time. It's a maelstrom of love. A storm of wild, mysterious, passionate, awesome love. And we who have been created in God's image have these the same desires, these passions storming in our lives. They are, two, they are the two great hungers of our soul. We long to belong, to be swallowed up in union. And at the same time, we want to be seen as unique people. 
We're wired up this way. We can't help ourselves. To be created in the image of God is to experience these passions. Each one of these movements, these passions, asks something of us, and each one has a potential danger if it exists without the other. First, we long for union. We want to belong. Many of us have experienced in our lives a moment when we felt a sense of oneness with all of life. It might be a quiet moment on the beach or listening to the symphony or being in prayer or spending time with a friend over coffee. There's just an incredible sense of union, of oneness. And it is this passion for union that is, that is at the center of our sexuality, that is the core of our longing for one another and for God. Union asks something of us. Self-sacrifice. What really matters is not me, but we. I give of myself for the sake of the other. But there's a potential danger. Too much union and we feel suffocated. Too much union and we experience what counselors call enmeshment. The other other movement or the other passion in our lives is toward uniqueness. It's that longing that each one of us has to make a difference because of who we are. Uniqueness is that who I am as a person matters. There is no one like me. There was no one who can do what God has uniquely gifted me to do. Uniqueness also asks something of us, a healthy sense of self. We must trust that God has created us to be exactly who we are. We need space and freedom to discover and to become that person. No other person can make us become something that God has not created us to be. But there's also a danger here. Too much uniqueness, and we feel lonely. We feel alone. Union and uniqueness. In the Trinity, the relationship moves constantly in both directions, a storm of love, and we find ourselves pulled in both directions. A new baby is born. That child is dependent on her parents. She is in union with her parents. And yet for the next 18 years, longer in my daughter's case, the child is also moving toward independence. The process in children from union to uniqueness is called in psychobabble individuation. It's healthy. It's good. We see this Trinitarian storm of love between union and uniqueness in marriage. This is where the wedding thing comes in. I've been at weddings. I've conducted wedding ceremonies where they do the unity candle thing, a symbol of their union in Christ. They take their own candles, they light the center candle, and they blow out their candles. One candle, one flame, one flesh. This oneness thing hangs around for about a week. And then most couples move toward uniqueness. And it's a struggle. It's a paradox. We want both union with our spouses and yet to be recognized as our own unique person. If there's too much union, we feel suffocated. When there's too much uniqueness, we feel lonely. It's a storm of love. In any important relationship, child, parent, husband, wife, 
friend, friend, we see the constant interchange between union and uniqueness. And so there you go. There's the Trinity, three and one, one and three, a mysterious relationship of dynamic love flowing between Father, Son, and Spirit. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we become part of this dynamic relationship of love. And miracle of miracles, we are brought into union with the God of the universe. It's wild and it's wonderfully good. Friends, it is all about relationship. We are created for relationship. Relationship is at the heart of everything. And yet there's something about our life as people that fights against relationship and against community. In the mid-19th century, a Frenchman and sociologist named Alexis de Tocqueville paid a visit to the fledgling experiment in democracy called the United States. He left from his visit with a mixture of admiration and concern And he coined a new word for what he saw. Individualism. Individualism has some benefits, but in many ways, and in many important ways, it is not how a relational God of love has created us. We were created to find ourselves in relationship, in community. And we have a ton of evidence that individualism is taking its toll. Robert Putnam, in his book Bowling Alone, says that the relationally isolated people, that relationally isolated people are considerably more likely to die younger than relationally connected people. He says that the single most important thing you can do to prolong your life expectancy is to get connected relationally. He writes that the scarcity of social connectedness represents one of the nation's most serious public health challenges. He cites one long-term study of relational connectedness. You won't believe this. It found that people who have, had, who have bad health habits, smoking, poor eating patterns, alcohol use, I'm going to tell you, you won't believe this, smoking, poor eating habits, bad alcohol use, but strong relational ties lived significantly longer than people who had great health habits but were isolated which means it is better to eat donuts with good friends than broccoli alone. (laughs) This is scientifically true. Another study took 268 volunteers and infected them with a common cold virus. How they found that many volunteers, I will never know. They found that those with strong relational connections did four times better fighting off illness than those who were more isolated. The relationally connected group was less susceptible to colds, shed less virus, and produced significantly less mucus than relationally isolated people. This is genuinely true. It is in the study. I am not making this up. People who are not relationally connected are snottier than people who are. If deep relationships are are vital for your physical life, they are indispensable for your spiritual life. I know of few people, if any, who are able to live the spiritual life alone. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic book, Life Together, writes about what he considers to be the single most important aspect of being in relationship and in community. Christian community means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. 
There is no Christian community that is more than this and none that is less than this. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. One of the most important aspects of being relationally connected is the opportunity it gives us to encounter Jesus Christ in a transforming way. But it isn't easy. Healthy relationships ask risk and vulnerability of us. Ken Erickson was one of the elders at the church where I did my internship as a pastor over 25 years ago. There's one episode in, in, in Ken's life that, is, um, uh, that lives on in my memory. It was the first night of an intern support group, a gathering of adults who met monthly to give me counsel and feedback as an intern. Ken was part of the group, and on the first night we went around and just briefly, in five to ten minutes, we shared something of our spiritual lives. And it got to the last person, a woman who had not been in a group like this one before. When it came her turn, she told a personal story of her struggle to live up to her father's expectations. Even though he had passed away, she still longed for his approval. And as she spoke, she began to weep. Afterwards, Ken walked up to this woman and, uh, and thanked her for sharing so humbly, so vulnerably. And then he said, and I'll never forget it, I learned more about you tonight in 10 minutes than I did in 20 years of worshiping side by side with you. One of my mentors in seminary suggested to me that I end every message with the question, so what? I've tried to take the doctrine of the Trinity out of the musty closet of theology. I've tried to make it a central aspect of relationship and of love. But now we're left with the question, so what? I want you to think about what it might mean in your own life to prioritize relationships. Is there a particular relationship that you feel drawn to give attention to? In the coastal range of Alaska, there's a mountain called Mount Fairweather. It's called Mount Fairweather because you can only see it in fair weather. And ironically, Mount Fairweather is usually crowded in clouds and storms and harsh weather. It's actually only visible about 15 to 20 days during any given year. We aren't gifted with that many moments of clarity. I'm wondering if perhaps God is calling you to reflect on a particular relationship in your life? Are you seeing something with a moment of Mount Fairweather clarity? In 1995, we learned that my wife had a cancerous tumor in her brain. That discovery was a moment of clarity for her and for our family. Let me just say that from that moment on, relationships took on a new importance. Our, til- our two children would ask her what she wanted for her birthday or for Mother's Day, and she would inevitably reply that she didn't want anything other than to spend time with them. And so while our son was in college in Seattle, her Mother's Day gift was a bus ticket to go spend the day with him. Cancer was a moment of clarity 
to help all of us see that it was relationships that really matter. This is a picture of my three granddaughters taken in early August of this year at the cemetery where my wife is buried on what would have been our 40th wedding anniversary. I live about a half mile from my two oldest granddaughters, Kenley and Dylan, and every week when I'm in town, I try to spend time with them on some kind of excursion or play date. Sometimes we just make pancakes together. Sometimes we go downtown to the Japanese Garden or to the Portland Art Museum. If you've ever gone through the art museum with a seven-year-old, it's a very interesting experience. Slowly I am learning that ultimately it is relationships that really matter. Something my, my wife taught me with utter clarity. Um, I'm a historian, so I, you need just a brief um, pietism, just a brief anecdote from church history. In 1712, Susanna Wesley read some published stories of the first missionaries in India. Reading those stories was a moment of clarity for her. She wrote, I was, I think, never more affected with anything. For several days I could speak, think or speak of little else. At last it came into my mind I might do something more than I do. I resolved to begin with my own children. She decided to spend one hour each week, one-on-one, with each one of her children, praying with them, talking with them, which may not seem like that big of a deal, except that she had 12 children. Thursday night was spent with her son, John, John Wesley, the man who would one day become the father of Methodism. Twenty years later, in 1732, during a hard time in his own life, John remembered those Thursday evenings, and in a letter to his mother, He wrote, if you could spare me only that little part of Thursday evening. It is relationships that ultimately matter. The doctrine of the Trinity lies at the heart of relationship and love. What might it mean to prioritize relationships in your life? Is there a particular relationship that you feel drawn to give attention to? In a moment of clarity, is there something you might do to invest in that relationship? Let's pray. Father, Son, Spirit, you not only model for us love, but you are love. And as we enter into a relationship with you, through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are brought into an experience of love that is unparalleled. And you ask us to live lives of love with one another in relationship. So I just pray that you would bring to our heart and mind the relationships that you would want us to pay attention to, to see, to invest in. Teach us how to love.
for the sake of your Son, and through his name we pray. Amen.